0: I am a feminist because I believe that every human being has the right to live in this world free from discrimination.
1: We we find that in every stage, the society does not give the woman the choices. And they do not trust the woman enough to make choices for themselves.
2: Even though we may not have lived as long, I think... We are just as much experts on our own bodies, on our own rights, um, as anybody else is. And that expertise is not something that can be, you know, that can be put aside because we're young.
3: Abortion in Kenya is illegal unless a mother's health is in danger. But that doesn't stop the procedure from happening. About one-fifth of all pregnancies in the country are terminated through risky means. Every day, seven women die from complications of an unsafe abortion. In 1994, the Philippines adopted the International Conference on Population and Development Program of Action. That recognizes reproductive rights as a key to ensuring a country's development. But to this day, the law infringes on women's and men's rights. Around the world, at grassroots levels, and in civil society, young people are taking action and raising their voices. Yet they remain underrepresented in political institutions and decision-making on issues of sexual and reproductive rights. For this special edition podcast, recorded during the 63rd session of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women in New York, Project Syndicate, in collaboration with the International Women's Health Coalition, follows three young sexual and reproductive rights advocates as they tackle challenges within their home countries and work towards gender empowerment and equality.
2: Uh, My name is Neha Sardana, I am from Washington DC in Maryland just outside Washington DC. My parents are from India originally, I'm a first generation American. I'm currently based in New York City where I am a program assistant on the advocacy and policy team at the International Women's Health Coalition.
0: My name is Jose Maria Nunag but I prefer to be called Lloyd i was born and raised in the philippines but recently i just moved to the united kingdom for a year now due to a lot of stigmatization and trumped up charges or persecution for human rights defender activists just like myself my
1: name is patricia uh, Teresa teresa i'm from kenya Uh, in a town called Kisumu. So in Kisumu, I work for a non-governmental organization known as KMET Kenya. Uh, KMET does reproductive health, uh, advocacy, and service delivery. So I do advocacy.
2: I grew up around a lot of women because my family is from India. I grew up around a lot of Indian relatives and first-generation Americans and immigrants, um, and a lot of women that I really looked up to who did not have the ability to make choices about their own bodies and about their own lives. And there was this huge, um, huge gap in the fact that they were so empowered and so, you know, um, strong, but the fact that they, at the end of the day, were not able to make decisions about themselves and to them, that was the norm, that was the status quo. Welcome everybody. Uh, ben Bienvenido. Uh, welcome to the AIP the advocacy and practice training for the Commission on the Status of Women, the 63rd Commission on the Status of Women. We're really happy to have you all here. Um, I'm a program assistant at IWHC sort of um, on activity, our international advocacy um, and, and policy team. To sort of get to know each other um, I want to explain a few things before we start. Just how I also run our youth activist training program um, called the Advocacy in Practice Program, which trains young people years, usually under the age of 30 um, so to, to advocate in global training. spaces and Everybody in regional in spaces. should have a headset. Please turn your headset to channel one. The goal of this training is not just for them to orient themselves around the UN the first time they are here, but for them to continue to come back. Patricia was really really a self-starter and that was the key thing that stood out but she's also just a brilliant person I mean she's an outstanding advocate um, in her community she's a lawyer she's just done amazing things already so it's really an asset to have her in international spaces because of her brilliance and the way she's able to speak on these issues Um, and Lloyd was chosen for very similar reasons we hadn't really met Lloyd before He has a lot of national level experience. Um, And because he's based in the UK, he's able to speak on the Philippines and hold them accountable a little bit more than other advocates would be that are actually based in the Philippines.
0: Growing up in the Philippines as a queer person from a rural area in such a very traditional and religious family background I have realized that my main I mean my existence in itself is a political act so I am doing activism or advocacy not for my work not for fame and honor but merely for the safety and security for people just like myself So back in the Philippines, I am very active when it comes to sexual reproductive health and rights activism. I was a nurse in a rural area in the Philippines, advocating for contraception, safe abortion, and youth empowerment in general.
1: This is a Victoria Line train to Walthamstow Central.
0: Really, the Philippines is the most dangerous place for human rights activists, advocates, or journalist, because it is not just the government who is perpetuating all this stigmatization, all this backlash on human rights, but more so the society in itself. Just because it's been normalized to people, even to children, that it is okay to kill, it is okay to discriminate people, based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, that women are a minority group, that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, are inhumane. Law is, uh, uh,
1: most often uh, than not, never made in a vacuum. So it is not made, the law is made for the people. and. Uh, Uh, There is quite a bit of a disconnect at times when it comes to law as it is practiced and law as it is written. And so I I, I believe that at times we close our minds in making laws. So we we lock ourselves in the room without involving the people that are most affected by issues, without uh, looking at the issues in a broad way. Okay, so abortion is legal in Kenya when the life of the mother is at risk, when the health of the mother is in danger, when it is permitted by any other written law, uh, and lastly in emergency situations. So when it is permitted by any other written law, our constitution recognizes the treaties and declarations that we have ratified as a country. So that means that even those become part of our laws. So in real sense uh, ab- uh, the space for offering abortion is very is very wide but the catch is in the opinion of a healthcare provider. So it takes the opinion of a healthcare provider to see whether the health or the life of the mother is at risk. In our communities, in our healthcare facilities even between healthcare workers is stigmatize themselves. so some are called the baby killers and others are the holy ones, such like uh, things. But even in the community, abortion is still not something that people can really talk about. So it is still very stigmatized. And so there is the issue of access and the issue of stigma that really affect uh, abortion services uptake. Access in terms of not many people are trained. Uh, We don't have a standards and guidelines, so... in, in real sense right now, it's very difficult to train providers uh, on offering abortion services. I think it's something that is is a barrier to access. The fact that the law is not very clear, healthcare workers are still being uh, uh, victimized for offering abortion services, uh, some that are in court. so. Uh, there are still a lot of harassment that make access very difficult. It's still very difficult to access abortion services in healthcare, uh, in uh, government uh, healthcare facilities, uh, lack of commodities, lack of equipment. So, in law, the service has been given. In practice, the service has been denied. So, our constitution again uh, gives us the right to information. So, we need to get information. But that information is not are readily available, uh, our teenage uh, pregnancy rates are high. But no one is talking about sex. Because apparently if you talk about comprehensive sexuality education, then you will teach young people how to do sex. So there's just a lot of, uh, again, myths and misconceptions and misunderstanding when it comes to what sex, uh, comprehensive sexuality education is. That I think needs to really be looked into. So I believe uh, uh, comprehensive sexuality education is really key in making sure that we drop in terms. There is a drop in terms of the number of teenage pregnancies that are currently being experienced, and when there is a uh, an unwanted pregnancy, the ch- chances of having an unsafe abortion are high, uh, an abortion really is high, and where uh, services are restricted, then the chances of unsafe abortion get high. And when unsafe abortion is high, the chances of death and maternal mortality. So I, I believe like even in in uh, solving issues to do the maternal mortality, then we need to begin from information. The second thing that is key is patriarchy. So I want to have... Uh, an, I, I heard of many cases where... When a woman wants to go for a service, then the man has to approve. And uh, the men uh, in their lives, some of them do not understand why am I getting married to you and you don't want to give birth. Because apparently the only main reason why a woman exists is to give birth, uh, according to a lot of men, especially in the rural areas. So you'll find cases of women coming for implants, uh implanons and then... Uh, they come back the next day with the husband and they have to remove it because the husband has refused. So that goes into the issues of empowerment. Most women are not empowered, so the man makes the decisions, the bulk of the decisions, any decision.
2: Starting from the top, um, I have my mole and my um, nose ring in my on my mini-me. Um, both are important to my identity. Um, the mole is something... Why I am I a feminist? That's a really difficult question. I think seeing really strict gender norms and growing up in an environment where I was often told to, you know not speak in front of certain people or wear certain things or not wear certain things or look a certain way and not look a certain way. I mean I think those pressures really start to come down on you until you reach a point where you're like, No, I think I I can I can decide what I wear. I can decide when I speak. I can decide when my voice needs to be heard. But then I also think professionally, you know, in terms of my career, in terms of me as a person growing, in terms of any of us being able to grow, how can you do any of that without being a feminist? How can you do any of that without believing that power needs to be distributed equally amongst individuals, that, you know, anybody who is working, regardless of what they look like regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of class, anything um, isn't as equal as anybody else. How does the world
0: move forward
2: if we're not all feminists?
0: And I think feminism is a powerful ideology, vision, or tool for us to use in order to combat this um, normalization towards these minority groups.
1: Historically, decisions have been made for us. We have never been on the decision table. We have never been given the privilege to come. And so we are saying nothing for us without us. So we want to have a seat in the table. I think uh, the Commission on the Status of Women is one of those uh, platforms where we begin to see and take stock of how far we have come. This is the 63rd one that's all for this episode thanks for listening i'll be back for our next episode
3: please rate and review our podcast and subscribe on your favorite listening app ps podcast is produced and edited by kasha brusalian special thanks to the international women's health coalition and project syndicate editors jonathan stein and rachel donna